Okay, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Derek Rosma. I'm the education coordinator. Um, I'm here with Isa, the political activities coordinator, and I'm here with Ardi Bowers. Ardi, uh, welcome. Well, welcome because we're in your place, but uh, nice to have you here. Um, I know Ardi from my uh, honors class. Uh, it's a class about China, the rising power, which uh, talks about uh, China in, in, the, in the 21st century and obviously about the rise uh, to power and all the things that come with it. Uh, furthermore, Ardi is also a teacher, a lecturer at uh, Guangzhou uh, University and she uh, teaches about journalism. Uh, other than that, she's also the founder, I believe, of the China Circle, uh, which gives advice to companies about, about um, media in, in China, so to say. Uh, and other than that, she also has a broad um, knowledge about uh, journalism. So, Ardi, uh, first question for you. Uh, where did your fascination start for China? Um, well, I was interested in cultures, in, in cultures from far away from, from the Netherlands and Europe. Uh, and um, China was a very sort of exotic and strange place to me. Uh, and when I had to decide what to, uh, what to study in university, um, somehow China was attractive and I thought, well, why not? Let's just try. This was in 1979, so a long time ago. I thought, well, let's just try. Uh, and if I don't like it, like it, I can always decide to study something completely different. I can always study law or economics or something else. Uh, so I just started it and, and liked it. Um, and the, I think one of my inspirations about China was uh, a detective novel, uh, Judge D. Uh, Robert van Gulik, who was a former diplomat, he also wrote these Judge D novels. Uh, and they were great. They, this was about China in the Tang Dynasty uh, and there was this judge, a very sort of honorable judge who uh, and, and really uh, strange uh, things happening and, and he was sort of moving around in this Tang Dynasty China. I thought that was very interesting. But during my studies, so I was interested in, in ancient China philosophy uh, and, and I uh, learned how to read Confucius in ancient Chinese, etc, etc. But the moment I stepped foot, I set foot on, um, uh, in, in mainland China, I never looked back again. I just was interested in the People's Republic of China, uh, its politics, its econ uh, economy, but especially also its society. So a very sort of old focus at first, but a complete turnaround later on. Okay, yes. Um, so you studied Sinology, if I'm correct? Yes, yes. language and culture. Okay, and you said that you studied, um, you studied uh, Confucianism texts mm -hmm. um, in ancient Chinese. Mm -hmm. You also speak Chinese, right? Yes, I do. Could you maybe give an example for us? Ah, Okay, I believe that that's Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> Very welcome <laughs> to you too. Um, I'm really happy that you're here. <laughs> yeah, uh, so currently uh, English is the third most spoken language in the world. Uh, next to that it's Spanish and with a whopping 900 um, 18 million people, uh, Chinese is on the first place. Do you think that Chinese will be the next global language? I honestly, uh, I don't think so. I think the, lang the Chinese language is quite difficult and complex and difficult to learn. Um, so if you're focusing on China, then Chinese is very important. Uh, but if you're not focusing on China, then uh, it just takes too much time and energy to study it. So I think large uh, groups of people in the world are never going to, to learn Chinese, but once you have, you have contact with China or Chinese, um, it's, it's getting more and more, uh, uh, it's becoming more and more an obligation to learn Chinese. So like 20 years ago, you could go to China as an, um, a foreigner, um, and work at a company and not speak Chinese. And now, if you want to get a job in China, they want you to have HSK level five or, or whatever. So they want you uh, to really put an effort into learning Chinese. Um, yes. So we had a question sent in by one of our students, uh, Flores. Um, he claimed that there was recently a book published um, which mentioned the tensions between uh, the inward cities, um, the more rural cities, 
um, and the tension between the, the more capitalistical uh, coastal cities. Um, could you elaborate if there is actually tension and do you think this might escalate uh, to, to more dangerous situations, so to say? Um, yes, this is, um, this is an important subject. So we tend to see China as one whole, whereas there are lots of um, uh, contradictions within China and, and many different parts with all different sets of rules. And one of the really most important contradictions is the one between the richer coastal areas that are a lot more developed uh, and the much poorer interior of China. Um, and what we've seen over the past two, three decades is that hundreds of millions of poor people from, this, from the uh, countryside have moved into cities, not to become really um, uh, inhabitants of cities, but to work in factories there. So it's sort of a, an underclass and they don't have the same rights as the original city people. Uh, it's called the floating population. So these are like three to four hundred million people who don't have access to healthcare, to schools, to all sorts of other things in the cities. Um, so who are sort of second class uh, citizens, um, but who do a lot of the work. Um, and what you, you do see quite a few um, especially at factories you, you see people, uh, workers who are not content uh, and who strike or who um, uh, uh, complain or who organize every now and then as well. So this is, it's, um, it, it, I, the, the authorities in Beijing really work hard not to let it get out of hand, so, so they're aware of this and they, they want um, uh, uh, to everyone to keep uh, uh, as quiet and sociable as, as possible, but this really is um, a problem. So it could, uh, at so some point, if their situation um, uh, becomes even worse than it is now, or if the gap between the rural poor and the, the urban rich uh, becomes even bigger, then this might really pose problems. Okay, yes. Um, you also talked about, um, about the, the People who come from the inwards country, uh, from the countryside towards the cities, not having the same rights, so to say. Mm -hmm. um, China is still officially communist, right? The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is a communist party. So you would think that they try to provide basic, uh, basic services to everybody, right? So is it that they are not offered these these services, or is it that they cannot afford these, for example, uh, houses? They are offered these services if they stay in the countryside. So they have access to healthcare, they have access to schools in their own original villages and towns. But once they move to Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou, then they lose those rights because these access to these facilities um, is tied in is is tied to your huko, and your huko is uh, uh, where you're officially registered. Um, so it's a way. Uh, it's it's a sort of a policy where the government um, tries to control more or less uh, the the flow of population within China. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we as Westerns all, uh, often have a probably distorted view of the Chinese people uh, and China itself. Um, could you maybe give an insight into how the Chinese look at Western people or the civilization? Um, and does that view of the government equal the view of the people towards the West? Yeah, this is changing over time, of course. The first time I, I um, uh, came to China was in the early 1980s. Uh, and there were not many Western people at all. So I was sort of a very strange person. And they, especially in the countryside where they never saw Westerners, they tried to touch me and, and uh, felt my skin and my... So I was like really, really strange. Uh, well, over the decades that has changed, especially in the cities, uh, well, in, like in Shanghai, so many uh, white and uh, black and uh, all sorts of faces that it's not so strange anymore. Um, so the more, the more access to people from other places than China, the more people get used to it. What I've noticed over the past, say, 10 years, um, uh, Chinese are, are usually, a lot of people in China are very interested in what's happening in the West. Uh, a lot of Chinese young people want to study in the West, so study in the US or in Europe. 
Um, but over the past couple of years, uh, what you see is a growing tendency of uh, pride uh, about China itself and of nationalist feelings. Uh, and, and the state media really work hard on um, stimulating that as well. Um, so if I, I look at the state media at this time, um, you see a lot of uh, how bad the West is doing, uh, especially America with the US-China uh, trade war and tech war. Uh, there's a lot of look at how uh, the US can't cope with uh, the COVID-19 crisis and look how uh, well we've managed to do so. So Chinese official media um, really uh, uh, paint a picture at this time of uh, we in China are very successful, We're almo we've almost um, gotten rid of real uh, poverty, uh, we've been working hard on that uh, and um, uh, the West and all those democracies are uh, in a state, in a mess. So, and then they point to the US in US elections, they point to COVID-19, they point to Brexit. Um, and they say, well, is this what your, your perfect Western system is like? Well, if it is, then we're not interested. And quite a few people uh, in China are susceptible to that. So over the years, um, I, I, you see an increase, I hear an increasing number of people um, who are convinced that the Chinese system uh, is better for China and they don't need another system. When I think of China, I, I automatically think about an authoritarian state uh, with, with a lot of uh, authoritarian measures. Um, and it sometimes even reminds me of, of the book from George Orwell, 1984, if I see about all the CCTV cameras that are placed in cities where there's face recognition, uh, stuff like that. Um, what really shocked me was when I heard about the social credit system. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe briefly explain what the social credit system is and if you could uh, tell us um, how the Chinese people view this and if this is working or if there's any um, great benefits to it. Yeah, a social credit system um, was sort of set up uh, originally because um, uh, China was quite advanced um, in uh, e-commerce. Uh, and when you order stuff online, um, you don't, as a, a customer, you, you, you want to be sure that the person where you, you send money to for, uh, for goods uh, is reliable and vice versa. If you sell goods, you don't want to sell it, um, send it off without knowing for sure that your client is, is reliable. Um, and there was nothing within China to uh, guarantee that. And China is quite a low trust society, so people didn't trust each other. Um, so a little bit like uh, with Airbnb and, and, and many Western platforms as well, um, they, they set up this system where a client uh, grades the, um, uh, the, the, the seller and where the seller uh, grades the client. Uh, and this sort of um, uh, made it possible to, uh, for e-commerce to really take off and, and it took off um, in an incredible way. The Chinese buy way more online, the whole online uh, e-commerce uh, uh, environment is, is much more advanced and um, uh, much faster than what we have here. Um, so that's the origin of it. Um, if you combine credit worthiness of uh, customers uh, and if you, as, a, as a company you also give access to the authorities to the same information and you combine that with all sorts of other information, you get something um, that feels scary to a lot of us. Uh, because it, it shows, well, have you um, uh, speeded in, in your car? Um, uh, have you ever been expelled from school? Have you... Jaywalked, right? Yeah, oh, well, so... Any jaywalking is one example. Have you ever sort of there's a red light and you're, you're across the street anyway? Um, so all of that uh, could be sort of put into the same system. Now, in um, so this this whole idea of putting it all in the system and seeing China as one really uh, big, very advanced system um, is scary. Uh, and and that, really, that, that idea is really scary, but in reality, 
that's not how the system works at this time. So there are all sorts of trials of this social credit system where some is very much based still on e-commerce, where some uh, local authorities have combined it with other data. Um, but it's not the case yet that all these systems are combined on a national level and that if you are um, uh, if you have a bad credit score, then you'll be picked out of a, a, a group of uh, a large group of people uh, everywhere. One thing that I usually show um, uh, to my students here in uh, in the Netherlands or in, in other places as well is an advertisement for 5G technology for um, uh, China Mobile, I think it is. Uh, and they have this ad where they show how the, the, the Chinese system works really well in, in accessing all these data, putting it together, in finding criminals. Uh, and and uh, that it's an ad. And if, if I show it to my students, they say, wow, this really is dystopian. This is like 1984. Mm -hmm. Whereas the fact that it's an ad proves that Chinese people like it. So the idea for, for most, the, the response of most Chinese about these systems is that um, it gives them a, a, a sense of security. So um, they imagine that if you have a basket of apples and there's one rotten apple, then it's best if the government picks out, takes out that rotten apple to uh, take good care of the rest. So it's for the sake of the, the rest of society that they do this. And I think a large majority of Chinese really feel that way, really feel that it helps uh, for their sense of security for themselves and their parents and their children. And that's a completely different way of us looking at it. Yeah, yeah. definitely, because at the, the, the classes you give, um, we're constantly confronted with, with this, this, um, this, this contrast of our vision of, of China and the Chinese vision of China. So for, to, to hear about the social credit system, for example, that it has not been implemented um, everywhere yet, is, is kind of yeah, eye-opening because we always get the image from, okay, they have the social credit system, it's bad, um, it's already uh, taking away so many rights of people, but if there's consent, so to say, by the Chinese people, it's, it's really uh, eye-opening that most of these things are not that bad, so to say. Yeah, or it's, it, it's viewed as something beneficial, yeah. so, and, and, and I think it's important to not sort of put our ideas on, on China because it's, we tend to have a, a preconceptions uh, and then when, whatever we see we sort of interpret it in, uh, in that particular way, yes. whereas um, I think it's important to also look at it from another perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Considering censorship, uh, is there a way for the Chinese to discuss politics uh, or their disapproval uh, with each other. Um, I know that Derek sometimes uh, mentioned uh, a way of communicating uh, via social media um, uh, with certain characters. Um, could you maybe give a more... What's interesting about the way Chinese communicate f um, and what's very different from the way most people, especially in the Netherlands but mainly in, in Western countries communicate, is that Chinese people are uh, communicate in a much more layered way, much more, we sort of tend to say well this is the way it is and this is my opinion and if you don't agree we're going to have a discussion. Uh, Chinese are much more used to reading between the lines, so all sorts of hidden messages they pick up on. Uh, whereas for um, a Dutch audience, I would have to sort of spell it out and then people would pick it up. So what happens, for instance, if um, well something like the Me Too campaign um, uh, became really big in the US and then in Europe. Um, and of course, there is a lot of um, sexual harassment in China as well. Uh, so uh, Chinese women started to pick up, up on that as well and started to share their stories. Well, the hashtag Me Too uh, in English was immediately banned because that was not what the authorities wanted people to talk about. So they switched uh, the hashtag um, and then at some point they started to use um, uh, uh, sounds that uh, in Chinese that sound like Me Too and the Me uh, uh, means a bowl of rice uh, and two means a rabbit. So they used 
um, the pictures of a bowl of rice and a rabbit with a hashtag uh, and then it takes a while for the authorities to find out that that means me too as well and for it to ban but then the stories have spread a lot already uh, and the same happened for instance around um, uh, Tiananmen 1989 the protests um, June 4th uh, 1989 was well this is the protest and they were really um, um, very harshly suppressed uh, with um, uh, hundreds or maybe thousands of dead um, and uh, so that is the sort of information that is not uh, well the authorities don't like you to share uh, in Chinese um, the June 4th is 6-4, 6 month 4th day so it became 6-4 while immediately that was suppressed as well so at some point they, the people look for other ways of saying the same thing so either they use pictures and then spread the word uh, but at some point um, something like the 31st um, uh, let me see uh, May uh, 35th or something became uh, uh, what what they shared and that is then if you say May May 35th is the same as June 4th so they're very very creative in, in pictures and in words and in hashtags uh, and in that way they um, because people are so used to reading between the lines uh, lots of people know what's be what's what the intentions are um. Democratic European governments are not fully transparent, but we can get somewhat of a glimpse of the inner workings about, uh, for example, who has the real power uh, in their hands. Um, how does this look inside the CCP, uh, the Chinese Communist Party? Um, is there an authoritarian uh, rule by Xi Jinping, if I pronounce it right? Mm -hmm. um, and does he have checks and balances uh, from within uh, the party? Um, can anyone even look inside? Very, very difficult. So um, some people call this reading tea leaves, uh, trying to understand what's happening at the top of uh, the Beijing leadership. Uh, usually um, uh, what's happening at this, this time we just don't know. So you sort of look at all sorts of, of signals and try to combine them and then draw a conclusion. Um, very carefully. Uh, it seems that Xi Jinping, the, the number one leader, really uh, is in control at the moment. Um, former leaders uh, after Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong was sort of the uh, number one leader as well for a long time between 1949 and his death in 1976 and since then uh, Chinese leadership was collective so it was a group of seven or nine always men uh, who were the top leadership uh, and then another layer of 25 uh, people who sort of supported those uh, and then so very layered um, but uh, since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012 so eight years ago um, he really uh, has um, uh, uh, controlled a lot uh, and, and uh, where before Xi Jinping Usually the General Secretary of the Communist Party was responsible for all sorts of uh, political and social issues. Uh, the Prime Minister um, was usually responsible for the economy. Xi Jinping, the moment he came to power, also decided that he was going to chair the most important um, economic um, uh, meetings and committees. He also became immediately the leader of the Central Military Commission. So all the vital positions are in the hands of Xi Jinping himself and that gives all of us at least an impression that he really is in power and then you can also look at who else is being appointed in different positions um, and, and it, it makes sense to then look at um, how these relationships are. Are these people Xi Jinping used to work with in his former career? Are these friends of Xi Jinping or are they from other areas? Well, a lot of Xi Jinping people are being appointed, have been appointed over the years. Yeah. So it's, it's difficult to say what exactly is happening and we always sort of know what's, what has been happening only a couple of years later, I'm afraid. Okay. So you wouldn't say there is a uh, 
a system of checks and balances? There's no, there's well, there is a system of checks and balances within the Communist Party. Um, so for China, it's very important to know that there is well, there is a state system, but it's not so important. So you have a president, Xi Jinping, but that position is not so important. You have the prime minister and you have ministers of not so important. So the, the party system is much more important. So you're looking at the party hierarchy and within the party um, there is a system of checks and balances more or less. Um, so there is a central disciplinary commission and they look at for instance, corruption, so very corrupt party members um, are being challenged and brought to uh, party justice. Um, but in the end, uh, the, the highest, highest, the top leaders of, uh, of the Communist Party uh, are the ones who set all the rules. So uh, it's not an open, transparent system at all, and the checks and balances are very much inner party checks and balances. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you have a broad experience and knowledge in journalism. And I was curious about what journalism looks like in China. Um, there's obviously a high degree of censorship. Uh, so how true is the profession of journalism there? Um, is it uh, compared to our image uh, of journalism? Or... No, well, the official um, task of journalists is to um, uh, present China in a positive light. Uh, and that's a completely different um, uh, uh, thing to, to Western journalists. So Western journalists um, look at what's happening and try to um, uh, um, uh, try to, well, it's sort of a, a, a part of the democracy as well, where um, uh, the government uh, says and does certain things and it's up to media to check uh, and maybe bring to light uh, uh, injustice, etc., etc. In China, the, uh, the journalist's official task is, um, well, make sure that the world knows and uh, how well China is doing. Um, and this, especially also, again, since Xi Jinping really has become uh, much more mandatory than in the past. Um, so it has become much more difficult for Chinese journalists to really do uh, investigative journalism. But there still are journalists who do so. So there are some very, very um, brave people who delve into stories and, and uh, miscarriage of justice or whatever uh, and bring that to light. Um, the, it has been a bit easier for journalists about 10 to 15 years ago. And you could really see uh, that there were some journalist magazines that tried to push the envelope at the time. Now it's getting more difficult. But if you want to uh, work within the system and still... Um, uh, because most Chinese journalists still want to improve uh, people's lives, basically. Want to uh, look at injustice and try to help solve that. Uh, so if I, I teach journalism at a, a Chinese university in, in the south of China, um, and the, the subjects they come up with are uh, about child labor and uh, uh, forced marriages or women being kidnapped in Vietnam and brought into China because there's, there are not enough women to marry men. So, listen. so all things and, and uh, about corruption, environmental uh, um, uh, issues, etc., etc. So the subjects are the same. It's just that the, the way the, the space that they have to, to actually really delve into these subjects um, is a bit more limited. Um, but I think most of, if you look at international media, so we, there, are, there are quite a few correspondents from international media in China, I would dare to say that most of the important scoops uh, from international media are, have been prepared by Chinese assistants. So a lot of the information still comes through Chinese, um, but it's, it's, it's quite difficult for them to work. A way to work within the Chinese system is to look at what the leaders say is important. So if, you, uh, if there is a big anti-corruption campaign, 
then it's okay within certain boundaries um, to uh, delve into corruption stories. Um, uh, the environment um, is, is a big concern in China. Uh, so all sorts of environmental issues, you can really uh, bring those the problems to light um, without uh, ending up in jail, basically. Uh, so you have to choose your subjects carefully. Um, yeah, so you also briefly touched upon uh, when you were discussing the communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, that there were mostly or almost only men. Um, I can remember like pictures of the the Great Hall with all the Communist parties, and then you see like 12 uh, females sitting um, there. And you also talked about um, women being kidnapped from Vietnam because there's a shortage of, um, I'd say, a shortage of women. It sounds really weird to say that. Um, and you obviously also had the, the, the uh, for a long time, the one child policy, uh, which I also heard terrible stories from where, where, they, where they had multiple uh, children and then one boy and one girl. If you only get one, uh, if you only can have one child, who are you going to pick? So it's these terrible stories. I'm really curious. How? What? What is the position of women in, in Chinese society? Obviously, the the, the 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 entire world is going through changes right now. So I was wondering, is the position of women better compared to the last decades, or hasn't it really changed? Or? Um, well, position in China uh, when there were still emperors uh, was really, really bad. You had to be very submissive uh, as a woman. Um, in the, the, um, under communism, uh, the position of women really improved. Uh, so Mao Zedong said, well, women hold up half of the sky. So they're really important. And the first law after setting up the, the um, People's Republic of China in 1949 was the marriage law. And the marriage law was there to protect rights of women within marriage. Um, so th those were really, really big changes from the feudal society with no, um, uh, not a very good position for women at all to 1949 and, and the realization that women were important, uh, not just uh, in agriculture, but also in industry, etc., etc. Uh, now, if you look uh, at, at current China, I would say, so politics, it's very difficult for women to, um, uh, to reach the top. So the top seven, all men. Uh, then there is a layer of 25 and there's one woman there. Uh, and then, well, so, so in, in politics it's very difficult. But in ordinary life and especially in business, I would say the position of women might be even better in China than it is in, um, in the Netherlands. So there are lots, it's very normal to work. Uh, and women do not work part-time, but work full-time, have very good careers, are very successful. So if you have business meetings or, or also government meetings, then it's like 50-50 men-woman. Uh, and and the, the women are, uh, 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 well, very effective, efficient and, and work very well. Um, so it's, it's just in politics that you see that uh, the position of women is, is not very good. Yeah. Thank you for those insights. Um, so we already talked about uh, briefly before this interview about that we might be scared that, that you can, cannot say certain things, uh, stuff like that. Um, I was also wondering, since you're also a lecturer in, in China, did you, this is probably from my ignorance because I, I don't, we, we see China as this very authoritarian uh, state. Did you get, um, for example, a letter from Ministry of uh, Internal Affairs or something with with, uh, with list? These are things you can say, these are things you can't say. Is there somebody constantly shadowing you, following you around, anything like that? No, um, I started teaching about five years ago, so I've, I've been teaching at Jinan University in Guangzhou and also at Xiamen University. Uh, and um, uh, what we discussed was what I was good, what I was going to teach, uh, and then um, uh, I could sort of teach all sorts of general stuff about journalism or about intercultural communication, which is a little bit safer; it's not as political. Uh, but then they requested uh, me to teach um, uh, international news comparison and analysis. 
So that was their choice. Where So in my classes over the past couple of years, I've been sort of looking at uh, international developments uh, and then look at how the Chinese media uh, have been reporting on it and the international. Um, and both in Xiamen and in Guangzhou, um, I could teach what I wanted to teach. Uh, but in Xiamen, at the end of the course, they wanted to see my, present, my PowerPoint presentations. In Guangzhou, they never asked. Um, but over the years, things changed a little bit. So um, uh, I think three years ago, uh, in every single classroom, a camera was installed. Um, and that is very much how the system works. So um, uh, are they, is somebody shadowing me? No, people are not shadowing me, um, I think. Um, yeah. But <laughs> uh, with this camera, you never know whether people are going to watch or not, which is the same as, so censorship is, can be bad, but what's even more effective is self-censorship. That's the same with the camera. If this camera is there, um, uh, I'm convinced that they're not watching for 99% of the time. Um, because there are, there are 200 classrooms and they're not going to look at all these 200 classrooms at the same time. But the fact that it's there means that I'm aware of it, but also my students are aware of it. So I've, I've had uh, occasions where uh, a student asked a question about Tiananmen, for instance, which is a non-subject. Um, and then one of my students sort of pointed over his shoulder to the camera and said, well, maybe better not. And then for me, um, uh, I can decide whether I want to, to discuss it or not. For me, it's quite easy to discuss it. For my students, it might be more, more, uh, more of a problem. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, about the topic China as a ri rising power, um, are there any special benefits that the Chinese political system has uh, compared to the democratic system, uh, political system? Uh, in regards to effectively uh, governing? Well, what they say themselves is um, democracy uh, is very messy. Uh, and we in China uh, have a, merit a meritocracy. So we, we are governed by the best and brightest. And we choose those best and brightest through a very uh, uh, severe, uh, harsh vetting system within the Communist Party. So any, any Chinese leader who uh, um, arrives at the top 25 uh, will uh, probably have been in charge of a problem uh, of a city of 20 million people or a province of 80 or 100 million people. Um, so. Our people, is what they say, have a lot of experience uh, of um, uh, being in charge of quite large uh, groups of people uh, uh, and also and whole provinces. Um, and the fact that you don't have uh, um, uh, um, elections all the time means you don't have to, you, you can sort of in your, uh, as, as sort of a wise father of the nation, you can take the best uh, decisions um, uh, for uh, the whole population. So that's the thinking. Uh, and there is some, well, there are a couple of aspects um, uh, to it that to me ring, ring true as well. China is incredibly big. I mean, 1.4 billion people is a lot. Um, uh, there, there are many cities uh, over, um, a lot, there are many cities that I don't even know the names of, over 1 million. Uh, so a city of a million uh, inhabitants is not considered very big. So the large cities are over 10 million. Um, so it's, it's big and it's complex, uh, so how do you govern that? Um, well, uh, they say, well, we can, we can only govern such a complex society by um, uh, being autocratic, by, by um, ruling from Beijing with the best and brightest. There, is some, there, there might be something to say uh, to that. What I have been, um, I think we tend to put too much stress on the value of democracy. Um, 
And there, there are many kinds of democracy. So uh, one man, one vote, or one woman, one vote is a form of democracy, but you have all, well, the, the US democracy to me uh, is very messy as well, where lots of people don't have access to voting. Uh, looking at Brexit, to me, where 51% of the population decided on something very, very important, and 49% of the population's opinion was just shoved aside, feels to me, not very just. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, there, there are many different types of democracies, uh, and even in some Western democracies, the system does not appeal to me. As um, I think, looking at China um, and talking to many Chinese people over the years, um, most Chinese people do not really think that democracy is. Uh, uh, the one goal to achieve. The thing a lot of Chinese people do stress is justice. So if we keep saying, well, democracy is the most important, then you're not going to find many people in China who say, yeah, oh, yes, indeed. I mean, there are some, but not many. Um, if you talk about justice, then a lot of Chinese people can relate to that. So um, I think uh, if you look at our system, then rule of law is maybe a better access point to discuss uh, benefits of, uh, of our system, for instance, than just hammer on democracy. So if you talk about rule of law and the fact that uh, uh, all people should have equal access and well, etc. Cetera, et cetera, um, then that is something that a lot of, of Chinese uh, can relate to. Whereas if you just say, well, democracy, then they, well, I think by now, especially with the American elections, just love you uh, in the face. I think we at uh, political science, we obviously always get told, uh, yeah, we try to be uh, non-biased when we teach you stuff about uh, democracy or, or any other form of, of, of rule. Um, but I think that as example, the COVID situation, um, compare USA, such as seen as the pinnacle of democracy, compared to China, it's safe to say who handled it the best, right? So I think that might also be an, uh, an, uh, an argument for that. Um, I was also wondering, because you studied uh, Confucianism, um, for the students uh, from the th second year or third year, um, at History of Political uh, Thought, we also get thought uh, teach a few um, Chinese um, ways of thinking. For example, Confucianism and legalism as well. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering how big is the influence of these religions, so to say, um, to the uh, Chinese society and the Chinese uh, political um, setup? Is it still very influential or is it more changed to, to more communistic ideals? Um, Confucianism is more a philosophy than a religion. Uh, but um, uh, I would say uh, Mao Zedong really tried to eradicate Confucianism. He thought uh, Confucius was backward and um, didn't fit into a communist society. Um, Xi Jinping looks uh, much more uh, uh, looks at co uh, Confucianism in a much more positive light. Um, so the whole idea, I think, just looking at Chinese society, not just at the rulers, but at Chinese society. Um, this idea, uh, one of the basic ideas of, of Confucianism is that there are some fixed relationships. So you have the relationship between the ruler and the ruled, and the people who are ruled have to behave in a certain way. And the ruler needs to be uh, a responsible father, basically taking care of his or her population. If, if the ruler does not work like that anymore, then the ruled have a right to rise up to rebel. Kind of the, the um, mandate of heaven, so to say. Yeah. 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 yeah so, that, so that idea is, and then there are, so these relationships, so if you are in a certain position, you know how to behave. And I think that idea is still quite prevalent in China and has become even stronger uh, over the past. So during Maoism, uh, it was not very present anymore because it really was suppressed, but uh, now you see that a lot more. Um, legalism um, is 
this is well, in, in my mind this is very much the first emperor of China he was a legalist and legalists are incredibly harsh in uh, in China so uh, for me um, uh, legalism is also partly burning books anybody who dissents get rid of it um, so legalism is uh, we have rules um, to make sure people behave in a way that we want them to behave uh, and I would it, yeah it's interesting to look at somebody like Xi Jinping the current leader uh, through a legalist prism because it seems that he uh, might have read his legalist classics quite a lot yeah 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 I had the feeling as well um, so moving on um, I'm not sure if I speak for, for many uh, Westerners, but I'm, I certainly feel this way myself. Um, people are obviously usually afraid of change. Um, so, and we're also, well, I am a bit afraid of, of the ideals of China in, in general. Um, so having China as this rising power that, that will probably take over or has already taken over uh, the USA as a, as a superpower, um, people might get afraid that China might get too involved in their usual lives. Do you think that it is grounded to, to think that China might influence our lives and our Western ideals that much through ways of uh, espionage um, or maybe even, for example, territorial expansion? Um, I think China is mainly uh, concerned with China itself, much more with China itself than with the outside world. So for China, um, uh, um, politics, international politics are less important than uh, Chinese national politics. Um, but China really feels that it has the right to uh, the top position. Uh, and China feels that it has been the leading economy in the world for, for centuries uh, and there was this intermezzo uh, of, of American uh, superpower but now China is sort of stepping back on, its, uh, on, on the stage and that is, that's its rightful place. Um, in this whole idea of, of um, wanting to uh, become the number one, not just in the economic field, but also militarily and uh, technologically. Um, there are, uh, it, it's very likely, and possible when it's happening, um, is that uh, um, uh, technology, for instance, can be um, uh, stolen from others. So if, if you look at uh, uh, not just from from companies, but also sometimes all sorts of research and development, both militarily, non-militarily. Um, this goal of becoming the greatest um, sort of makes it okay, uh, make, makes all sorts of means to attain that goal uh, okay from a Chinese point of view. Um, so if it is in the Chinese interest to obtain a certain technology, um, they will not necessarily play by very nice rules, would be my thinking. Um, if you look at, uh, are they going to sort of um, um, uh, take over large um, uh, parts of the world? Chinese propaganda has been that they won't. They always say, we've never been expansionist. And that is not true. So if you look at um, uh, a map of Han China around the, the year zero or just 200 before uh, Christ, and you look at Tang China, you look at Ming China, you look at Qing China, well, there China was from small, a bit bigger, even bigger, and Qing dynasty China that was the last uh, 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 empire uh, was a really, really big um, uh, um, territory. So they have um, uh, expanded um, and what they now try, to, so they try in their, in, in their narrative to, to say um, somehow that they've never been, uh, uh, never been invading anybody, whereas that is not true. Um, that said, um, I 
just looking at where they might want to expand to. You see all sorts of stuff happening on the China-India border. Um, Chinese Sea as well, right? Yeah, the South China Sea, uh, and you see, and there's Taiwan, of course. Um, so I would not say that China would never expand, uh, but at some point you need to also decide where you want to uh, uh, do your battles and where not. Uh, one of the things that, so the South China Sea, you can see that China has um, uh, changed the maps uh, over the years and uh, has sort of put a nine dash line around some, well, not even islands. Uh, and they've been building islands with small flight strips and, and small harbors as well to show, well, this is Chinese territory and that's why we, we have uh, the right to, to a lot of territory around it as well. Um, so that is something where they, they have been working for a long time already to show, well, this is Chinese territory. We're not expanding, but this has always been the case, which is not, not true. Uh, and for Taiwan, um, that is, uh, uh, that has been a story where in 1949 there were the communists versus the nationalists. The communists and the Mao Zedong won. The nationalists uh, fled to Taiwan. Uh, and uh, for a couple of decades after 1949, the nationalists in, in Taiwan wanted to reconquer the mainland. Uh, so both agreed that Taiwan and, Ch and mainland China were one. Uh, now, over the past couple of decades in, in Taiwan, um, uh, Taiwan has become a, a parliamentary democracy and they've changed quite a bit. So now, and, and there are other parties than just the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, uh, and they don't want reunification with China. Um, so now one of the big questions is, is uh, where if Taiwan would want to be a separate entity or even a separate country, um, what's China going to do? Um, and listening to Xi Jinping and looking at the way uh, China has been dealing with Hong Kong and the return of Hong Kong to the motherland, um, I would expect China to be quite uh, aggressive towards Taiwan. So a year ago I wouldn't have thought China might become, might really even use military means. Now that has become a possibility. Mm -hmm. So things are moving. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think you, how do you say that, uh, made some fears disappear for me. Um, that China's not really focused on, on the international, so to say. Um, and I really like that you keep teaching us about, about the Chinese perspective as well. But there's still one fear I have, um, and maybe some people are thinking as well. Um, are you a Chinese spy sent by the government? Am I a spy? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, was, I would never say so if I were. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, I don't think the Chinese government likes what I say and what I teach so much. So I'm, I would, if I, if you want to know whether people are spies, it's good to look at their actions. Uh, and um, uh, I am uh, not very close to the Chinese embassy here in The Hague and never invited to the 1st of October celebrations. Uh, so maybe that's all just my scheming. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> but maybe, no. you never know. Yeah, the Chinese are smart. So yeah. <laughs> Moving to another important topic, uh, some say um, China is looking more and more like North Korea. You have uh, Xi Jinping, uh, who is taking this central role in the government, uh, which might look like the position uh, as a supreme leader. Um, and there's also camps uh, where Uyghurs are putting um, are put in, um, and these might be uh, similar to camps in North Korea. And there's all obviously also in North Korea, uh, like in North Korea, a certain degree of censor censorship. Um, is it a fair comparison to um, compare China to North Korea? I would call China autocratic, uh, North Korea, well, maybe autocratic to the max. North Korea is much smaller, so um, I, I, 
just looking at the Chinese political system, it's, it's very uh, centrally uh, organized, it's uh, autocratic, so, and th there's no democracy, there is a, a one-party rule, there are a couple of other political parties don't have much influence. I think a big difference, the reason for camps in North Korea is very different from China. Uh, reason for camps, uh, in North Korea there, there were camps for all sorts and, and lots of people who think differently are in those camps as far as I know because I'm not a specialist on that. Looking at the camps in, uh, in Xinjiang, in the western part of China, um, these are, uh, according to the United Nations, almost uh, about one million people are in those camps, so, so an incredible amount. Um, and uh, all of them are Muslims and people from the Uyghur um, uh, minority. And it seems, so looking at the reason for those camps, um, I would look at Chinese uh, reasons and, and that's not comparable to, to North Korea in my, in my view. It looks like the leadership in Beijing wants um, to, and that's an old word, uh, to sinicize all its minorities. And to sinicize is to make them Chinese, uh, make them act like Chinese. Um, and they have been doing that for a long time with the Tibetans as well. Uh, and they are now, there, there are discussions in um, uh, Inner Mongolia where um, there cannot be uh, any school in, in the local language anymore. So really eradicating aspects of local culture in Tibet, in Xinjiang, in um, uh, Inner Mongolia and in other places. Looking at, at, at uh, Xinjiang, it looks like uh, China really wants to um, change the way of life of a very large minority group. Uh, no Korans um, uh, anymore, no greetings uh, in Arabic, no, um, uh, no beards anymore. Uh, uh, people have to start to eat um, uh, pork. Um, might be sort of seduced or forced to drink alcohol. So what they basically are trying is to force uh, the Han Chinese way of life onto an entire uh, population. Yeah. And as that population does not really want or does not really want that, they've been doing it with a lot of force. And they do so under uh, the guise of saying, well, these are desperately poor people, they don't have uh, uh, skills, and we are going to give them skills to uh, take better care of themselves. Uh, and that's happening in, in Xinjiang, that has been happening in, in Tibet uh, earlier as well. So the whole, if you ask an average Chinese person what they think of what, what has been happening in Tibet and is happening now in Xinjiang, they will probably say, well, these were like, uh, these were sort of feudal societies, very old fashioned, um, uh, very poor people, and we helped them to work in factories or to bake bread or to make uh, uh, whatever to produce, uh, and we helped them uh, to become uh, r richer uh, and uh, have better lives. Yeah. And that is being taught in schools. So talking to most people in China, also students, um, if you've always learned in school that um, this is sort of a civilization campaign uh, for, for the good of those people, then it's very, so f it's very difficult for people who've been born and raised in China to know what's going on mm -hmm. uh, if the Chinese media are not open about it. Yeah, um, if I speak for myself, this is a terrible problem mm -hmm. uh, that people are yeah. being put in camps. Um, but if we look at the action taken by governments all over the world, um, not that many countries actually take action. Is there a specific reason 
um, why we do not act upon this problem? Well, one of the things um, that has to do with China's size and China's influence, I think. Uh, and one of the things a lot of people are waiting for is for the Muslim world to take action. And the Muslim world is really, really silent on this. Um, and I'm convinced that if, if people from Muslim countries would do a lot more, then it would, it, it, that would spread to other countries as well. But it's, it's, it, it's difficult if the whole Muslim world keeps mum about it to then from Amsterdam or Paris or somewhere else um, uh, take the initiative. So that's not an excuse, but it's, it's very... Um, that makes the fact that China um, has had uh, lots of connections with many Muslim countries um, and Pakistan for instance, but also in Central Asia um, somehow led to, to, to the fact that they are not saying uh, that this is uh, inexcusable or uh, uh, a human rights violation or whatever words they will want to use. And the fact that that does not, that, that the Muslim world does not do it, makes it even harder for the West to be very effective there. Okay. Okay. So yeah, obviously the Uyghurs is, is a topic that, that um, it speaks to many, that, that really gets the emotions high for many people. One thing that really hit me was also the, the situation of Hong Kong, seeing the protesters acting peacefully uh, against against Chinese uh, government that is using violence and oppression to, to really pin them down. I was wondering, um, does Hong Kong stand a chance against China, against the... Um, so to say, incorporation into China. Um, if so how uh, is there a chance? Um, and is it even, um, does China even need to be careful with handling Hong Kong? Um, China has not been very careful with handling Hong Kong. Um, it has been careful uh, a long time ago, so, but recently not anymore. So if you look at the national security law that was imposed on the 1st of July uh, of this year, so a couple of months ago. Uh, that was really Beijing deciding that it was, they had enough. They did not want any demonstrations anymore. They did not want, uh, uh, they, they wanted to, to uh, be in full control of uh, government, uh, of the local government in, in Hong Kong. Um, and that was decided overnight and imposed on Hong Kong. No uh, involvement or consultation of the, the Hong Kong population at all. So if you look at that, there's, no, there's not much Hong, the Hong Kong population can do now because they decided to do so uh, and apparently uh, concluded that it was okay to do so. Now if you look at um, Hong Kong from an international um, uh, um, law perspective, then in the 1980s Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping um, talked and concluded that Britain, the old colonial power, was going to give Hong Kong back. Uh, and uh, a lot of territory of Hong Kong had been leased to Britain for um, uh, a long time. Uh, and only Hong Kong, it's Hong Kong Island itself, was really a property of uh, the colonial British Empire. Uh, but uh, even even so, um, they decided that Hong Kong would become part of China again, uh, and they decided there would be a, a 50 uh, uh, year period where they um, could get used to each other, and Hong Kong could sort of um, uh, maybe slowly change into uh, China's direction. And China, and I really remember Deng Xiaoping saying so, would probably also. Uh, change a little bit into Hong Kong's direction, so both could sort of uh, grow a little bit more alike. Um, the idea was from 1997 onwards, when Hong Kong was formally handed back to China, that Hong Kong would become would stay in a sort of independent territory, and only its defense and foreign uh, policy would be in the hands of, uh, of Beijing. Now, with the national security 
law in uh, uh, July of this year, that completely turned around because everything now is in the hands of Beijing. And I don't, in, to say it in a not very subtle way, um, in, in my opinion, Hong Kong has overnight turned into just another Chinese city. Uh, well, thank you, Artie, for, uh, for sharing your insights on uh, China. We, we often get teached about China um, that it is going to become a rising power. But it's also have to, to, uh, nice to have some um, insights on what it actually means and uh, what China really is about. Um, so thank you for taking the time. Um, if anybody is considering doing the honors uh, classes, I re highly recommend uh, joining Artie's class, China the Rising Power. Um, it, it gives you great insights about, about uh, Chinese, China in general, but also the Chinese perspective. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your questions and your curiosity, because I think that's what's really important. It's a, whether you like China or do not like China, I don't care really. Uh, but I really think we should be much more curious about what's happening in that very important country.